off the ecclesiastical grid when the church goes underground. The history, worldview, and lessons of the underground church. This is a recording of the lesson taught on July 17, 2022, in our Sundays in July. Better yet, it should be clarified that this is a re-recording of that lesson since the original lesson was not properly recorded. As a result, you will not hear the interaction of a speaker with audience uh, and a certain energy that can take place in that context will be missing. Nonetheless, this is such an important topic that we felt it necessary to record it and make it available. If you are listening to this, there is a good chance that you may be having to consider the possibility of going underground or having to continue in an underground motive or motif. We pray for you. We are available as needed. Slides from this lesson can be provided in PDF upon emailed request to the church. Continuing with the topic, there does not seem to be a major comprehensive source. This has been prepared from a number of materials, a number of sources, as will become apparent upon the listening. Uh, At the outset, I would like to say that I am extremely grateful to my wife, who has provided me with many of those resources over the years, as well as the time to read them, and in fact, the time to prepare this re-recording. To my sons, Mike and Steve, who helped with the slides, and to both Nathan Busnitz and Tim Cantrell, two colleagues of mine in the ministry and service of the church at large. Without the help of all of those individuals, this would not have been possible. Continuing with the topic, two comments should be noted concerning the people who participate, who have participated over the centuries in the underground church. First, it should be noted at the outset that they are remarkably normal. There is nothing unusual about those people, the people who have had to faithfully serve within the underground church, other than, secondly, They are endued with a certain greatness, uh, a certain courage and stature that is best understood to result from their faithfulness during a time of persecution and under fire. It's important to always begin with the Scripture 
directing your attention to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Now, we're not told specifically where that place was, but under the circumstances existing at the time, it was most likely in a place of seclusion, a place that was not widely known and hopefully was not known to the authorities. And we see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. The church had met together in compliance with the instruction of the Lord that they were to wait until power had come upon them. During that time period, they also had had to recognize who the Lord had appointed to replace Judas Iscariot as one of the twelve. Moving forward, also in the book of Acts, Acts 12, 11 through 17, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. By way of context, uh, Peter had been imprisoned. Herod was persecuting the church in an effort to curry favor with the Jewish authorities. While Peter is in prison, the believers gathered in prayer for him. God answered that prayer and sent an angel who released Peter from prison. Peter is in a daze of some sort until he is actually out of the prison. And the text tells us that he came to himself. He knew that the Lord had rescued him. When he realized this, the text goes on to say, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they said in response, oh, it is his angel. Peter, however, continued knocking, and when they had finally opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison, and he said, report these things to James and the brethren. In other words, uh, let the other men know. Then he left and went to another place. It should be noted that the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, very likely could have been the upper room location where they had met for the Last Supper, and very likely was also the location where the church had met uh, and where it was in the first chapter of Acts and the early part of the second chapter. It is very likely the first house church or the first underground church in all of Scripture.
Peter writes, 1 Peter 1, 13, and then continuing uh, two verses in chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Peter is writing at a time when the church, uh, in its frequent mode of operation, had to continually and regularly be meeting in what we would today refer to as a house church or as an underground church. The scripture refers to at least three other house churches. Verse 2 of the book of Philemon tells us that there was a church that met in the house of Philemon. Very likely its pastor was Archippus. Colossians chapter 4 verse 15 tells us that there was a church that met in the house of an individual known as Nympha. We know nothing other than that a house church met there about that particular individual. Finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19, we're told of a church that met in the house of Priscilla and Aquila. Why should we study the topic of the underground church and the lessons that can be learned from it? Four reasons. First of all, it offers and helps with a precise clarification of focus and an elimination of the inessentials that all too often find their way into the church. Secondly, to fully understand the history of the church, how God has worked through his church over the centuries. To recognize certain dilemmas common to the church at these particular times, there are at least three. Uh, There are three that I will mention in this lesson, not to the exclusion of any others that uh, uh, may also be observed. And fourth, to prepare ourselves, to prepare the church for future attacks on the church. One of the lessons of the COVID pandemic for the church has been, without exaggeration, that we are never more than one government ruling or mandate away from having to take the church into an underground mode. One of the great Puritans, a man by the name of Richard Baxter, wrote a masterpiece of practical Christian doctrine. It's titled The Directory, Baxter's Directory. At question 109, 
asks, may we omit church assemblies on the Lord's Day if the magistrate forbid them? And the answer that he provides, it is one thing to forbid them for a time upon some special cause, as infection by pestilence, fire, war, etc., and another thing to forbid them statedly or profanely. It is one thing to omit them for a time and another to do it ordinarily. If the magistrate for a greater good as the common safety forbid church assemblies in a time of pestilence, assault by enemies, fire, or the like necessity, it is a duty to obey him. Because positive duties give place to those great natural duties which are their end, and so Christ justified himself and his disciples' violation of the external rest of the Sabbath. For the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Baxter goes on to say, If princes profanely forbid holy assemblies and public worship, either statedly or as a renunciation of Christ and our religion, it is not lawful formally to obey them. And then he goes on to state, but it is lawful prudently to do that secretly for the present necessity, which we cannot do publicly, and to do that with smaller numbers, which we cannot do with greater assemblies." Yes, and to omit some assemblies for a time that we may thereby have the opportunity for more, which is not formal, but only material obedience. Now, when Baxter uses the word profanely, he is not speaking in the sense of improper language, but in the sense of being from an ungodly or worldly motive or perspective. Baxter indicates that when that occurs, we may need to meet secretly. He is, in fact, laying out the case for the underground church in such a time. Uh, it should be noted that this passage from Baxter's assembly corresponds very closely to the course of action taken by the elders at Grace Community Church uh, during the pandemic. When the full impact of the coronavirus was not yet fully known or understood, we did comply. We did so until it became apparent that the government's perspective was from a worldly or an ungodly point of view. At that point, we realized that it was important to resume meeting, important to resume having worship services, uh, albeit somewhat different in the location and structure. Baxter himself, it should be noted, would eventually find himself facing the need uh, to respond to a similar government mandate. 
1662 when the government, in what is referred to in history as the Great Ejection, removed approximately 2,000 pastors, who we would refer to as Puritans, from their position within the Church of England following the Act of Uniformity. At that point in time, Many of the pastors were faced with the challenge of meeting in an underground or clandestine manner themselves. Now, continuing with the Ministry of Grace Church, just a little over two years ago, in July 2020, the Grace Church elders adopted a statement titled, A Biblical Case for the Church to Remain Open. In the course of that document, we wrote, Christians are therefore commanded not to forsake the practice of meeting together, Hebrews 10.25, and no earthly state has a right to restrict, delimit, or forbid the assembling of believers. We have always supported the underground church in nations where Christian congregational worship is deemed illegal by the state. Grace Church is on record, therefore, as being in full and complete support of the underground church. The statement indicated we were in support of that, where Christian congregational worship is deemed illegal by the state. We have recently learned of a situation where believers have had to meet for a prolonged period of time in an underground context, not specifically because of government mandate, but because of a terrorist organization operating effectively and with great impact in their location. In that location, the government is either unable or unwilling to provide the protection necessary to allow them to continue to meet. It should be noted that we support the underground church in that context just as much as where the government has specifically deemed congregational worship illegal. Now, in the course of this lesson, we want to talk in terms of just what is the underground church. We want to look at 20 historical examples, 20 lessons to be learned, and three ethical challenges to consider. What is the underground church? Broadly defined, it is when the church regularly must meet secretly and illegally. It is not the youth camp game, a glorified version of Capture the Flag, uh, that many listening to this recording may well have uh, enjoyed. We in our high school department, actually used that game. However, we never taught from it, to the best of my recall, to the extent that we should have. Quite simply, again, and broadly defined, 
the underground church is when the church must meet regularly on a secret and illegal basis. While preparing, I came across two appellate cases from the Federal Circuit Courts of Appeals, and they will help us to have a better understanding of what we're talking about. In the case of Kazem Tsada versus U.S. Attorney General, the court wrote, we agree that having to practice religion underground to avoid punishment is itself a form of persecution. In the case of Muir versus Ashcroft, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals wrote, quote, Christians living in the Roman Empire before Constantine made Christianity the empire's official religion, faced little risk of being thrown to the lions if they practiced their religion in secret. It doesn't follow that Rome did not persecute Christians or that a Christian who failed to conceal his faith would be acting unreasonably. One aim of persecuting a religion is to drive its adherents underground in the hope that their beliefs will not infect the remaining population. Uh, It would be interesting to see if these cases would be decided differently today after the pandemic has occurred. History would not necessarily support the view that believers faced, quote, little risk, unquote, if they practiced in secret. If they met as a group, they always faced the risk of intrusion, arrest, and punishment. Sometimes the persecution would give no option. Swear allegiance and sacrifice to Caesar as Lord or be punished and be punished very severely, often at the loss of your life. Wikipedia, the resource material available uh, online, limits the term underground church to Catholics meeting illegally in mainland China and as distinct from illegally meeting Protestant, quote, house churches, end of quote. We would reject that uh, definition, uh, understanding that, as previously stated, the underground church consists of every situation going back to the time of the earliest years of the church, where the church has been required to regularly meet secretly and doing so illegally, often at the risk of severe potential punishment. In recent years, however, we have seen the development of what I would refer to as quasi-underground churches, where the fully underground church would meet secretly in a clandestine manner due to persecution or being illegal. The quasi-underground churches have had to meet, quote, in plain sight, end of quote, while doing so under persecution and or otherwise illegally. 
It should be noted that there very likely may be extreme differences in the amount or nature of the punishments imposed. During the pandemic, Grace Community Church definitely met in a, quote, quasi-underground, end of quote, manner. Historical precedents. Probably one of the earliest precedents that we discern in Scripture comes from 1 Kings 17 and 18. Elijah is going to confront King Ahab, and he does so first after interacting with a man known as Obadiah. This is not the prophet Obadiah. This man had been Ahab's household steward. We don't know much about him, but he had hidden a number of prophets of the true God, and he did so in caves. In fact, the people of God had truly met underground at that particular time. We don't know any details, but Jezebel was attempting to purge all the prophets of Yahweh. We do not know the number that she actually had killed, but Obadiah had arranged for a number of the true prophets to be protected and saved throughout that period of time. There is also an intertestamentary precedent, Daniel 11.32 refers to a time when Antiochus Epiphanes has succeeded in subverting many of the Jews. Uh, The text tells us in Daniel 11.32 that many of them had uh, effectively betrayed the faith, but Daniel then comments that, quote, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action, end of quote. Now, this refers to, of course, uh, actions that will be taken during the end time. On the more immediate level, however, it also refers to the actions taken by the Maccabees, who resisted Antiochus Epiphanes between 168 and 160 B.C. Their conduct is noted with approval in the MacArthur Study Bible notes on Hebrews 11.35. The Maccabees fled to the hills, resisting the ungodly tyranny of Antiochus Epiphanes, and effectively leading an armed resistance. Historical examples. We have 20. I'll quickly walk through them. We do not want to get bogged down. First of all, the early church. We've already mentioned a couple of 
uh, biblical examples found in the book of Acts and in the epistles. This would have been prior to Constantine's edict of Milan in 313 AD. Walking through church history, the underground church, the following quote is given. Given the hostility toward them, both official and unofficial, Christians were secretive about who they were and what they believed. Entry required a long preparation period and careful scrutiny because the entire community was entrusting its existence to every new member. There was an extensive cult of secrecy, including the fish as a common recognition signal between Christians in public view. Those seeking baptism were recorded in a local book of life. If captured by a hostile party, it would provide a hit list. There were house churches. In fact, also at one point, the churches met in the catacombs. Places where bodies would normally be married. Those locations also became, over the course of time, a location where believers would meet quietly and clandestinely uh, because of the need to meet secretly at a time when meeting was illegal. The ichthus symbol. Now, the previously given quote refers to the sign of a fish. This was very popular during the 70s, the 80s. Uh, My wife has commented that at one time, virtually every Bible cover that you would find at Grace Community Church would have a variation of this on its surface. The ichthus symbol, this would occur in basic use if an individual came across a believer who he thought might also know Christ with his toe, his finger, with a stick, would draw an ark in the sand. If the individual truly knew Christ and understood what he was saying, the individual would draw a counter ark, essentially depicting the shape of a fish. The letters for the Greek word fish Someone realized that it would also use, in the Greek language, it would be an acrostic for the phrase, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And in the slide, we have a slide depicting the ichthus sign. Uh, It is not as encountered as much as it was at one time in Christian circles. But in the early years, it was often a very significant part of the church's security program. Historical examples, Athanasius, in standing for orthodox doctrine concerning the nature of Christ, the doctrine that we adhere to, Athanasius was exiled five times during the course of 17 years 
under four different Roman emperors while he was serving as a bishop. The phrase Athanasius contra mundo, Athanasius against the world, uh, became common at that particular time. He and his adherents invariably had to meet uh, in a secret or confidential environment. Another group, beginning in or around 1140 A.D., continuing even in a limited form to the present, is the Valdensians. They were disciples of Peter Valdo, and they were forerunners of the Reformation. They began to point out the corruption that even at that particular time uh, was appearing in the Roman Catholic Church. In Czechoslovakia, John Huss led a movement, the Bohemian Hussites, who were followers of Huss, also had to meet uh, illegally and in a clandestine manner. Huss was executed by being burnt at the stake. In England, the disciples of John Wycliffe, known as the Lollards, had to meet in a clandestine manner. Some of the early Anabaptists also found themselves having to gather and meet uh, clandestinely in an underground manner. In Belgium and in the Netherlands, French-speaking Calvinists known as the Walloons had to meet in an underground manner. Many of them would eventually find themselves uh, as part of a broader separate movement known as the Huguenots. The French Huguenots were the followers of the teaching of John Calvin and other reformers in what we know today as modern-day France. The French Huguenots would conduct what they titled Assemblies in the Desert, end of quote, where they would meet uh, in a clandestine, uh, hostile location so that they would enjoy the time of fellowship. The French Huguenots were bitterly and violently persecuted by the French government, prompting what may well have been the greatest brain drain in history. Many had to flee France. Many died as a result of that persecution and in faithfulness to the gospel. Wikipedia has a, quote, list of Huguenots, end of quote, that identifies some of the tremendously talented individuals who had to leave, who had to die, uh, or in some cases were enslaved for their faith at least 
107 are listed in that uh, resource. The true number is not known to historians, but it was most definitely in the thousands. That same article also lists some of the most gifted people uh, in our current world whose ancestry goes back to those who had to flee France as a result of that persecution. The London Underground Church. In response to both Marian and Elizabethan policies, many in England found themselves having to meet in a clandestine manner. Mary Tudor conducted the persecution that led to the name of the modern alcoholic beverage, the Bloody Mary. It was Mary who arranged for the execution of Hugh Latimer, William Rogers, Thomas Cranmer, and many others. The Scottish Protestants, when the Reformation went to Scotland, John Knox, who was really the third main leader in Scotland, uh, and his people often had to meet in a clandestine manner. They would be referred to as the, quote, privy kirks, the little churches, if you will, uh, very common to the Bible studies that we would know today. Following that, in the late 1600s, the Scottish Covenanters, under the leadership of Alexander Henderson and others resisted the view that the crown of England could dictate their doctrine, the church government, or the manner in which they worshipped. On a personal note, uh, in both the Scottish Reformation and in the Scottish Covenanters, there were men who shared the name that I have, George Crawford, most notably a covenanter captured in battle by the name of George Crawford was executed in December 1666 after leaving a written martyr's testimony. In 1662, and I've mentioned this earlier, the British government, the British crown and parliament enacted what is referred to as the Act of Uniformity, forcing approximately 2,000 English Puritan pastors out of their positions if they would not reject the church government and doctrine mandated by the English crown. Many of them faced situations where they either had to choose to 
stop preaching and teaching, or if they continued, they had to do so illegally, clandestinely, and at the risk of punishment and persecution if caught. John Bunyan was one of those men, and it was while imprisoned that he wrote the modern classic Pilgrim's Progress. During the first half of the 20th century, a remarkable example of the underground church was found in Korea. In a book titled The Korean Pentecost, William Blair and Bruce Hunt describes the faithfulness of the Korean church under both Japanese rule between 1910 and 1945 and the communist rule, particularly in the northern part of Korea, following the end of World War II. Blair and Hunt write, No one person knows or ever will know the number and names of all of those who died as a result of their opposition to shrine worship. End of quote. Put another way, no one person knows or ever will know the number and names of all of those who died as a result of their faithful opposition and their faithful participation in the underground church. That has been true of the underground church as a whole for the entirety of history. Another example of the underground church, while we may not have agreed with all of their theology, the German confessing church, with its most notable leader being Dietrich Bonhoeffer, had to meet clandestinely in many cases Bonhoeffer himself led a seminary at Finkenwalde that had to meet illegally and underground. A recent book titled Preaching in Hitler's Shadow records some of the great sermons of some of the men not known to a great degree in Western circles. Uh, among them, a man by the name of Julius von Jan, a separate individual, Paul Schneider, both of whom faithfully and at the cost of imprisonment and, in Schneider's case, execution, faithfully served Christ, faithfully proclaimed his word, uh, doing so in a manner that was in opposition to the Nazi-German regime at the time. The 20th century Russian church had to meet, in many cases, in a clandestine, illegal, and underground manner. The Chinese house church movement, under both Japanese and communist rule. No one has been more influential in the Chinese underground church movement than a man known as Wang Ming Dao. Even today, 
if you mention his name to individuals from China who are familiar with the house church movement, Wang Mingdao is regarded with great respect and as stated by one such individual, Wang Mingdao was the real thing. The Eastern European Church behind the Iron Curtain. In that situation, probably one of the greatest leaders that the church had was a man by the name of Richard Wurmbrand. In Uganda, under the monstrous dictatorial reign of Idi Amin, Kifa Simpanji, the pastor of the Church of Redeemer, uh, provided faithful leadership. In many of these cases, the church was meeting in what we would refer to as a quasi-underground manner. It was subject to severe government persecution. People often worshipped doing so uh, at the eventual cost of imprisonment or the loss of their lives. In the Islamic world, the church has often and continues to have to meet in a clandestine and underground manner. The Islamic world professes to provide freedom for Christians. However, it should be noted that conversion from Islam is considered to be both apostasy and a capital offense. Under the COVID pandemic, churches in the Western world found themselves having to meet in a clandestine underground manner. In the book titled God Versus Government, Nathan Busenitz and James Coates described the challenges that their respective churches had to deal with, had to meet in deciding whether or not to continue to meet. A different TMS grad, graduate, and who I will not identify, he's pastoring in a different province in Canada, continuing to this day, sent me the following statement when I was inquiring how things were going for him. He wrote, everything is good. On the edge of your seat, but good. Every time someone comes late and I look up while preaching, I wonder if it's the police. But so far, we've avoided any trouble. End of quote. Now consider having to meet in those circumstances uh, as a regular part of your worship. 
When I gave this lesson on July 17th, 2022, a gentleman approached me after the class, and I realized this was a man who had also just recently experienced imprisonment solely because his church had continued to meet. Nothing but respect is owed to those individuals who have acted with that level of faithfulness. What, if any, lessons should we learn from the underground church? Are there any examples that we should consider? Written materials? One particular document deserves consideration. Written by Richard Vermbrand, titled Preparing for the Underground Church, 13 principles are listed, many of which are valuable, all of which are to be tested and examined by the light of Scripture. Uh, I'm going to list 20 principles. I'll identify some of them where they have been principles he mentions. Uh, I'll also include some additional principles that I believe definitely need to be considered. Vermbrand, first of all, points out that we must mentally prepare for suffering. Mentally prepare for the possible reality that the church may need to meet for a period of time in an underground or clandestine manner. His first principle was mentally prepare for suffering. The fourth principle that he quoted, be certain of your faith. Doubt makes traitors. Preparing for the underground church may well entail taking the time to be sure of your confidence in the Scripture. Be certain of your confidence in the account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Another principle that he identified was resist brainwashing. And yet another principle he quoted, understand the continuity of your identity with biblical precedent. That is the 13th principle that he quotes. First, and these are the lessons that I will elicit, realize that the government, the official established church, or both of them acting in concert together, may malfunction and become ravenous wolves. In a recent book, Alex Strauch points out that the ravenous wolves described in Acts 20, verse 29, this is, of course, Paul's uh, admonition to the Ephesian church, the ravenous wolves, first and foremost, 
have often been the government in a persecuting mode. Secondly, be ready to reassess priorities. What is truly important in your life? Third, continue in the Word. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, during a time of intense persecution, it is imperative that the church continues in the Word of God. The German Confessing Church, under the regime of Adolf Hitler, developed what they referred to as the, quote, text sermon, end of quote. Uh, It was a source of independence while under persecution. What's the characteristic of the text sermon? The attachment, and this is a quote, the attachment of the sermon to a biblical text The Bible text should not be merely a motto placed at the head of the sermon, not merely the occasion for all sorts of associations, not merely a peg on which to hang a theme chosen by the preacher, but should be in complete control of the preacher. The sermon should make this text more perspicuous to the hearer than it was before. At the same time, it should give pleasure so that one is thankful for it and be a source of guidance for life today. The preacher's subordination to this text frees him from all other authorities, end of quote. The importance of expository preaching. The value of memorization. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Randy Alcorn has written a book titled Safely Home on the life of the clandestine underground church in communist China. He points out that often the church has had to function where the word was not always otherwise available, and often the guidance that the church had from Scripture was dependent on what had been memorized by the people of God. That also points out the danger of doctrinal aberration when the word was not properly recalled and when the word was not otherwise widely available. Continue in prayer. We've looked at Acts 12, 11 through 17. Vermbrand refers to continuing in the spiritual disciplines. It's not totally clear from his essay exactly what he is referring to by that chapter or by that phrase. Uh, However, it should suffice it to say, it, it should be sufficient to say that he is referring to continuing in the study of the Word, continuing in meditation upon the Word, and continuing in prayer. The church often is benefited by realizing the value of a biblically-based document or confession summarizing the church's position on the issues that are then at hand. The Scottish National Covenant was prepared by the Scottish Covenanters. The Barman Declaration sums up 
the position held by the German confessing church in opposition to Adolf Hitler. Finally, and this uh, to some extent uh, is very much the case, the institutes of the Christian religion were exactly such a document uh, provided to the French monarchy as a justification, an explanation of the Protestant movement uh, that took place in France and was so brutally persecuted. That document has become a resource, a classic resource to Reformed Christianity, but it is interesting to keep in mind that it was originally prepared uh, to provide an explanation to the French crown as to why people were adhering to Reformed doctrine. Sometimes a rallying phrase or a battle cry becomes extremely helpful. In the Korean Pentecost, we read of an indigenous Korean lay pastor, a man by the name of Lee Yonji, little known, if not completely unknown, in the West. He preached a sermon from Matthew 24, verse 13. And a phrase in that text became something of a rallying or battle cry for the Korean underground church. We in the English language would translate it, quote, to the end, end of quote. In the Korean, however, the phrase was gut kaji, gut kaji, to the end. Again, sometimes a rallying phrase or battle cry is extremely helpful. We have to always keep in mind, we have to ask ourselves, how dear to us is the truth? The truth, the specific truth of Scripture, and the God who is truth and cannot lie. Uh, Wurmbrand identifies this as his second principle. Another important lesson, you have to expect infiltration. You have to expect a certain amount of infiltration and limit access only to screened individuals. With regard to the expectation of infiltration, Judas Iscariot infiltrated the twelve. Christ knew, he understood what was going on, and yet it provides an example that even today uh, that can continue. Kepha Simpanji in the Church of the Redeemer was commenting to another elder that he had learned that an elder was informing the government concerning what was going on within the church. The other elder mentioned to Kepha, 
There is no community on earth where there is not a Judas. That was experienced by Paul. We read of Alexander, who may well have been uh, a purported convert, eventually causing him much trouble. Demas, we're told at the end of 2 Timothy, loved this world and therefore left Paul. One of our affiliated churches that had to go underground during the pandemic has informed me of the deliberate efforts they had to carry out to screen those who would attend. For obvious reasons, I cannot disclose his identity or the steps that were taken at that particular time. The point being, again, you have to expect infiltration and you have to limit access to screened individuals. Be ready for times of crisis. This is Vermban's principle number six. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 20, tells us that we need to put on the whole armor of God and that we will be then ready to stand during the evil day. The MacArthur Study Bible points out quite correctly that every day since the time of Christ, to some extent, has been an evil day. Nonetheless, there are times, and the Scripture would also indicate this, that the power of the evil one has been unleashed in particular specific and violent persecution of the church of Jesus Christ. We have to be ready for that. We have to develop a biblical perspective on physical punishment and torture. Colossians 1.24, Paul realizes that experiences of that sort really ultimately are directed at Christ himself. Vermbrand gives this perspective, illustrates this at greater length in principle five of his essay. We have to guard against our own human weaknesses. There is always a temptation to retract or equivocate under torture or under extreme pressure. We see this in the gospel when Peter denies the Lord during a time of scrutiny and while Christ is being subjected to trial. Uh, During the Marian persecution, the great Thomas Cranmer did so. Cranmer ultimately retracted his retraction. And in the Chinese underground church, Wang Mingdao at one point retracts, is released from prison, and almost immediately retracts his retraction, uh, returning to prison 
and staying there even after the Chinese government uh, had wanted, for political reasons, to send him home. Another lesson, we are not to, quote, love our lives, end of quote. And the citation here is to Revelation 12, 11. What does this mean? Does this mean that we are not to enjoy normal human pleasures in life? Absolutely not. It does mean, however, that we are to realize that our love for Christ may jeopardize our physical health. It may also jeopardize our economic prosperity. We need to realize that our love for Christ is supreme over our love for our families. Shortly after World War II had ended and communist control over Eastern Europe had been established, Wurmbrand, who was... A pastor at the time was invited to attend a meeting of the leadership of the churches in that particular area. One by one by one, many of those leaders came to the podium and effectively retracted their allegiance to Christ subjecting themselves to the authority, the doctrinal prescriptions of the communist government. Wurmbrand was there along with his wife. His wife, Sabina Wurmbrand, looks at him and she says, when you get a chance, wipe the shame off the face of Christ. Testing her conviction, Wurmbrand looked at her and said, if I do, I will go to jail. She looked back at him and stated, I don't want a coward for a husband. Hearing that injected passion, injected intense energy, Wurmbrand went to the stage when called and maintained the consistency of his faith. He eventually underwent imprisonment for a number of years. The Korean Pentecost points out similarly, in so many of those cases where men were faithful to the end. The man was backed by a consecrated wife, a real prayer warrior. She would not pray for her husband's release, but that he would be strong and of good courage until the end. There's that phrase again, to the end. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote it at a time when he was imprisoned. He was imprisoned for a very long period of time, if I recall correctly, 
12 years, he could have been released immediately if he would agree not to preach. He could not do so. We have benefited by his faithfulness uh, through the work, Pilgrim's Progress, that was prepared during that time. Our hopes and expectations need to be fixed exclusively on Christ. 1 Peter 1.13, Colossians 3.2-4. Kipha Simpanje in his book, A Distant Grief, records that in the Church of the Redeemer, quote, we determined to make Christ the beginning and the end of all our expectations. We determined to have no hope except that which was derived from Scripture. End of quote. We need to be diligent to maintain unity. There should be no unnecessary quarrels or conflict. Be careful what is stated about other believers in other churches. Limit your words and learn to be silent. These two principles in Vermbrand's essay are found in Principle 8 and Principle 10. He points out that careless words, when the church must go underground, can lead to imprisonment and the loss of life. We need to learn not to overanswer a question. Vermbrand's ninth principle, he actually calls for the development of permissible stratagems. Uh, he describes a situation where an individual uh, might be confronted on his way to a Bible study, asked where he is going. The individual responded, quote, my older brother has died. We are gathering to read his testament, end of quote. Absolutely correct. Not what a police officer might consider would indicate uh, a religious gathering. He describes another situation where a man was confronted and asked where he was going. In this case, the law enforcement officer knew that he was a believer and asked if the church or the group was meeting. Without any response more, uh, the believer looked at the officer and said, Comrade, it is illegal to have prayer meetings, end of quote. We don't know whether he was still suspicious or not, but the officer let the believer go at that particular time. Vermbrand's point is to learn not to overanswer a question and develop permissible, non-false, correction, true responses that he describes as permissible stratagems. Resist brainwashing. 
Keep your mind clear and focused on the Word. This is Vernbrand's principle 11. Romans 12, 2 tells us we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Resist the effort of those within your culture to brainwash you in an ungodly manner. Learn to cope with or embrace times of enforced solitude. Vermbrand describes this in Principle 12. Uh, he learned to treasure the nights. He learned to preach sermons to himself and to God, proclaiming the Word of God during that period of time, even when no one would be listening. Now, the underground church faces significant challenges. Three should be noted. This is by no means an exhaustive list. First of all, it faces the challenge at times of a required but premature transition of leadership. I have the phrase here, uh, on the slide, quote, ordination by Nokia, end of quote. Alcorn describes situations that occurred when an informant in a police officer would call the pastor of a house church, letting him know that law enforcement was on the way. The practice was for the pastor to give the cell phone by which he had received that notice to another individual within the church, that individual would be required to assume the pastoral responsibilities. The church would be dispersed, the pastor would remain and accept the imprisonment and persecution by the law enforcement officers when they arrived. The challenge, again, of a required but probably premature transition of leadership. The church must face, and this has been previously noted, uh, the challenge of how much information is to be disclosed during times of government inquisition. The problem is much more difficult when it should be remembered that this often has been through the implementation of torture. How truthful are you to be knowing that information that you provide could be used to arrest others? We are never in the context of Scripture, to be false or to lie. Nonetheless, uh, there are times when we do not need to disclose everything that we know. Sometimes choosing to remain silent in order to protect others. A third question that has been faced historically 
do the members of the underground church ever resort to armed resistance or to violence in their opposition to the government? Should they? This is a very controversial question, and I will not attempt at this point to provide a definitive answer either way other than to note that of the 20 groups identified, in one form or another, approximately one-third of those groups felt that they had no option but to attempt to uh, take action against a sitting government. Again, this is an ethical challenge. It is a dilemma that has often had to be faced by those in the underground church. Finally, in conclusion, I would refer your attention to the hymn, The Church's One Foundation. It sums up the passion and the heart cry of those who have been faithful. Heart cry of those who have been faithful and faithful to the end. The words of that hymn, though with a scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping will be the morn of song. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. To with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious will be the church at rest. Again, this has been a re-recording of a lesson that was taught during Sundays in July, on July 17th, 2022. It addresses a topic that is extremely important and very likely may become more so as the years go by. We trust that this will provide strength, courage, and some helpful resources to any and all who may take the time to listen. May God bless you, may God bless your churches, and may he provide the strength and character that you need to serve him during the time of your ministry.